Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me, on the mic, hosting an episode where I share recent reflection or story from my own life, as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am very excited to be chatting with Justine Polevsky. Justine is the co-founder and CEO of Kindred, where she focuses on customer experience and brand. Before founding Kindred, Justine was part of the early team at Open Door, where she launched several markets, developed the home trade-up product, and scaled the company's unique self-tour program. Justine's cultural contributions include founding Open Door, leading the company's engineering retros, and serving as designated culture interviewer during hypergrowth, which we will have to talk about. Prior experiences also include being VP of customer experience at PropTep Company, Homebound, and working at Bain & Company. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Justine Polevsky. Welcome. Hi, Erica. How's it going? It's going good. It's a Friday. The people who are listening to it, this, I don't know what day it is for you, but it is the end of the day on a Friday. So I am just ready for a weekend. That's how I'm really doing. How are you doing? I have to say the same. It's a beautiful, sunny afternoon. So after this, I'm going to go catch up with some girlfriends and grab a drink outside. And so it's a good day. Oh, that's so lovely. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I feel like that's a great Friday vibe. I teeter between making absolutely no plans at all because I just, by the end of the week, don't want to talk to them, anyone, and I'm so tired, versus like, yeah, maybe some girlfriends. That sounds kind of nice, just to kind of like vent and kind of go through the weekend. Yeah, absolutely. I totally get that. I've been trying to adhere to my own little version of Shabbat on Fridays. I'm half Jewish, so I sort of like pick and choose what I want to, to take from the traditions, but I've been trying to say sundown on Friday, done with technology, work is over and try to have something planned where I can kind of see friends, whether it's a, an actual dinner party or just uh, getting together with other humans, you know, <laughs> try to have a ritual to unwind from the week. Oh my gosh, I love that. I am also half Jewish. Amazing. So fun fact, I love that. I think I need to do that more. I try to protect my Saturdays, but I really like this like Friday night into Saturday idea. I might copy you. Thanks for the heads up. That's a great one. Awesome. Well, before we dive into like the meat of your 20s, we do like to start every show with a bit of a fun question, you know, an icebreaker, as they say. So take this however you want. My question for you is what is something new that you learned in this past week? It could be something super light and fun, like a fun fact. It could also be like a conversation that really made you think differently. It could be a book, movie, anything that comes to mind. I have, I think, a great answer for this one. My sister texted me this week and said, oh my gosh, did you know how young the founding fathers were (laughs) when they wrote the Declaration of Independence? I don't know if you have heard of this. I had not. I actually think I saw that. I might've seen the same thing your your sister did, like a Twitter thread or something. They were like 18 or 21, right? Like really young. Yeah, 
they were like James Monroe was 18. John Marshall was 20. Aaron Burr was 20. Hamilton was 21. Like they were young. They were kids. I think Thomas Jefferson was like 30 or early 30s, 33 or something like that. But it honestly, it felt relevant for dear 20 something because I was like, that's pretty young, you know, to like invent a new form of government. And yet it also like sort of makes sense, you know, like you sort of have to be a bit young and naive to think you can actually like have a revolution against England and win. And so there's something kind of like beautiful about the boldness of the Declaration of Independence and knowing that it was just like a bunch of like late teenager, early 20s dudes who came together and they're like, you know what? Let's think a little bigger here, boys. Like, (laughs) I just love thinking about that. It's just so wild because like when I think about the 18 year old men that I know, and maybe this is just how society has changed, but like, I would not trust them with many things, let alone like 250 years of democracy. Like that just sounds crazy to imagine. On the flip side, it also is like anyone who's 21, 22, 23, that's a lot to live up to. Like at this time, someone else had written the Declaration of Independence and signed it. Like that's pretty intimidating. I think that's a whole part of the show too, is like we try to bring people on that are amazing and show that they like got fired in their 20s and like, we're not doing anything or we're just figuring it out. And so the idea also that someone pre-20s, literally 18, did something so insane. It's a little intimidating. It's like, okay, I've got some work to do. I know, totally. I mean, I don't, I don't know how, how any of us could, you know, live up to that. I certainly am, am no uh, founding father. Oh, neither am I. 18 feels young. Yeah, that's definitely a good fun fact. I really appreciate that. We don't get many fun facts actually with that question. So that's a really good one. Anyone can throw it at a dinner party now and very relevant to 20-somethings. Okay, so before we get into your 20s, we like to chat a little bit about the childhood just to understand, obviously you have a sister, which you just mentioned. When you were younger, what were like some of your biggest influences and what did you want to be when you grew up? So I I grew up in San Francisco and have an older sister, have a, a, a mom and dad. I certainly am very influenced by them. I mean, as we all are. And I think that interestingly, my relationship with my sister, I think was very formative. And I don't know if other siblings relate to this or if it was just me, but my older sister, her name is Jenna. She's one of my like best friends. And she actually contracts with my company now on and off. She, she's um, kind of like full-time parent, but helps out at Kindred. So she was so good at everything. You know, like she was like so cool and so smart and, you know, she was older than me. And there are certain things that that she was really good at. And I remember being a little kid being like, okay, like what's my niche going to be? You know, like how do I like, (laughs) like how do I like differentiate myself? And I think, you know, you see there's some statistics around like often like athletes, you know, are like the younger sibling because they were always trying to keep up with the older sibling. And so I, I, I think that I kind of like remember deciding, which is weird and nerdy to say, but like at a young age, I was going to be like, I'm going to have to be like really smart. (laughs) Like that's going to have to be my, I'm going to be, I'm going to like read books. I'm going to like be a nerd. I'm going to, you know, and I kind of like decided that like I was going to be good at school. And I think that it sort of like defined a lot of my identity and this, this kind of, um, pressure cooker that I put myself in by being like, I have to be good at school because this is what I'm, you know, this is what I decided like my value is. And so I I spent a lot of my childhood reading and doing my homework very studiously. 
and overall kind of leading, leaning into some kind of nerdy curiosities, partially as a way to kind of like define myself. And I think as I grew up, I started to learn like, I don't need to perform to be worthy and maybe it's okay to, you know, get a bad grade here and there. But I, I think that the, the other kind of formative trend probably from my childhood was I just had like a kind of wild imagination. Like I really kind of like lived in my head. I had a lot of imaginary worlds and imaginary friends and spent a long time or spent a, a, a tremendous amount of time kind of uh, dreaming up kind of worlds and, and stories and, and the like. You asked what I wanted to be when I grew up. I didn't know. I, I changed every day. I think what I probably stuck to the most was like, I wanted to be a marine biologist because I really, really liked the ocean and water. And I really liked dolphins. And I also wanted to be a poet. I like wrote a lot of poetry and had a, a kind of like sensitive side. And so <laughs> I didn't know if I wanted to be a science person or a writing person and uh, it kind of changed what I wanted to be all the time. Oh my gosh, I love that. You sound like such a cool kid. <laughs> Very multifaceted. Although you say being smart was your thing, like for you to like dolphins and for you to like to write and have imagination, like you must have been a cool kid. What was like your sister's thing? Like you said she was cool. Would you say she was studious or would you say that that was like you made that your thing? Was she as imaginative or was that your like how what was like the yin yang between the, the two of you? I'm a twin. So I'm like obsessed with like and I have a twin sister. So I'm obsessed with like sisters what parts they take after each other and they're similar and what parts they like totally overcompensate for the other's like weakness or strength. You know what I mean? Totally. I just remember, and I can send you a a picture of my sister afterward, but she's gorgeous. Like my sister is very, very beautiful. So are you, are you kidding? Thank you. Um, But especially when you're young, you know, like your older sister is just like so much cooler, you know? So she was, she was really popular and, and really well liked and really effortless kind of socially. And so I think that I, I saw that and I was like, all right, like, like, I'm gonna have to have something else, <laughs> you know, and I'll never forget, like saying to my mom, like I was, you know, hard on myself and, and, and had some insecurities. Like, I think a lot of, a lot of us are. And I, I remember saying to my mom, like, oh, I don't like my hair. I don't like my, you know, my nose. I don't like this and that. And I remember her being like, well, Justine, I guess you're just going to have to get by on your personality, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is like a kind of awesome mom comment. Um, and I was like, shit, like, I guess I am. Like, <laughs> I'm going to have to get by on my personality. Like, so I think that when you're a kid, the difference in age of just three years is so, is so big. It feels so big. And so you feel like there's a lot that you're, you're kind of behind on and the older people are always way cooler. And so my, my sister definitely, I mean, she is very cool, but she definitely was way cooler than I was. I love it. Well, I would argue you're both so cool now. Maybe like less, you were less cool then, but you're both very cool now. I'm obsessed with your mom for saying that. I'm sure you were probably in that moment wanting her to be like, no, honey, like your nose is beautiful. And like, your hair is beautiful. And she was like, well, good luck with your personality. Like that is just iconic that she said that. Okay, I'd love to know too, like you talked about this, you hinted at nerdy curiosities and then you just walked right past that. Is there like one nerdy curiosity that you can share that was the nerdiest of the nerdiest of curiosities? Oh man, I got really... So, I mean, I guess it depends on what age we're talking about. When I was maybe eight, nine years old, I got really into different religions. I learned all sorts about mythology and I decided so much of religion is these people who just like make stuff up. And so why can't I do that? And so I invented my own religion. (laughs) 
<laughs> that of course, you know, and when we get to, like another kind of like wacky mom story, she loved it. She was like, what's your religion called? And what are your holidays? And she really encouraged me. So I, I developed my own religion. And looking back, it was sort of like a mixture between like a gratitude practice and a kind of like nature-y kind of religion. And and we'd had this little practice for a bit of time where I made this little like little like altar in my room for my own religion I invented. And we would sit there at night, light a candle and like write one thing that we were grateful for and like put it on the on this little rock, this little flat rock and go to bed. And so that was a, a like, you know, dirty, I was, I was sort of like other people can invent these rituals and these practices. And, you know, to our conversation earlier being like half Jewish, like I was sort of like, I wasn't like Jewish enough to be like really Jewish. And I wasn't like Christian enough to be really Christian. I didn't really feel like I had a super strong sense of like religious identity. And I think I was always a little bit jealous of people who did. And so I was like, you know what, like, I'm going to make it up. Like, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to invent this. Okay, I'm obsessed because I'm the exact same way. It is very weird hearing you talk about this. I even now say my religion is gratitude in nature. Like even now, to this day, we're talking about you as a kid, obviously. Like, you know, back then, who knows what you were thinking? But like, I think those are tried and true principles that like should be the root of everything because like a lot of what religion teaches us, like you said, it's like, I don't know, it's a lot of people just talking about stuff. It's all kind of the same, but it's about being a good person. It's about being grateful. It's about connecting with the world around you, the energy or the God. It's so wild to hear you talk about this because like, one, I hope my kid does that and we can start our own religion. And two, like, that's what I practice now. And I'm actually, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. If this is something you still prioritize because I'm older now and I'm always seeking community. I'm always seeking connection. I think that's what religion does well, right? But a lot of the times, like, I don't identify with going to a Jewish synagogue or like a Christian church. And I want like a religion for 20 somethings that's like about gratitude and about wellness and about curiosity and about nature and all the things that are my things that I care about. What, how have you found, if you have found like fulfillment in that way? And like, yeah, do you think that there is a place for like a religion like that now? I mean, I know it's a joke like when you were younger, but it's actually very much, I think, what this generation is really craving. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this makes me think maybe there, maybe there's other people like us. <laughs> I know I, I definitely think there is room for a different kind of community that may have some strands of like spirituality or rituals, traditions, like things that you do together that brings people together that can deliver some of the same kind of sense of identity, sense of connection, sense of belonging, sense of kind of coherence kind of through time that I think religions have in the past kind of served for people. I think that we, we often like find it in different ways in different places, whether it's, I always go to the same workout classes with the same people and I like, you know, get uh, like, that's my ritual. Um, or, you know, going to Burning Man and, you know, being with my camp and like having these experiences or even just having rituals with family around. We always do these same board games, you know, together on Sunday nights. Those kinds of small gatherings, I think, are sort of like little buds of, you know, what at a larger scale could very well be called like a religious tradition. And so maybe there is, you know, an opportunity for um, for people to kind of gather on a broader scale. I don't know if you've read the book Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. I, I really recommend it. it. It's fantastic. And Octavia Butler is so cool. She's a sci-fi writer, 
But the premise of the book, without giving too much away, is it's this kind of post-apocalyptic world where there's a tremendous amount of climate change and income inequality and like all, all sorts of issues. And there is this kind of young girl who decides that she is going to start a new religion. And she kind of starts writing, you know, starts creating her own writings and actually kind of like gathers a following. And her religion is based on the premise of God is change and learning to shape change, learning to accept change, learning to welcome you know, things emerging and things falling away and, and kind of the, like natural cycles as part of the world. And, and she ends up kind of gathering a following and it, it sort of ends up being a kind of origin story of a kind of prophet-like character who invents her own religious as religion as a young, you know, girl. Well, I can't tell you friend, but you'll have to read it to find out. It's pretty good. It's a good read. Okay. So let's talk about Brown. So Cognitive science, Brown, really interesting major. Tell me why that and why that school? Yeah, so the reason why the school is, I loved learning about really, really different things. <laughs> and I loved that at Brown, there were no distribution requirements. You basically just had to pass a certain number of classes and you had to fulfill a major. But otherwise, you could just think of your course load like this buffet. And you're like, I want to take that. I want to take that. And you don't have to take any class you don't want to take. I'm obsessed. I did not know this about Brown. You can just, so basically it's for general education classes, right? Like you don't have to take all these prescribed classes. Yeah, absolutely. And so what's cool about it is every single class you're in, every person like chose to be there. You know, nobody's like, oh, I hate math. Like I'm stuck in this math class. You know, everybody kind of chose to be in that class out of this long list of classes. And so people were really engaged. And I also, you know, I grew up in California. I wanted to go to the East Coast and, and try something new. And you asked about cognitive neuroscience. Like that was a really interesting one. I came into college actually thinking I was more of like a humanities person who like secretly like loved science. But I felt more confident saying, you know, I like reading and writing. It felt harder to say I'm a science person. But I, I ended up taking, the, the other cool thing about Brown is that you can take anything you want, pass, fail. <laughs> as many classes as you want, pass, fail. That is incredible. Oh my gosh, I'm jealous. It's amazing so that you can take the class that you were like a little scared of and not really have to, to have to worry about the impact on your GPA if it turns out you're not good at it. And so it encourages you to try something new. And so I, I knew that there was a strong neuroscience department and I was like, well, you know, what the heck? I'll, I'll try like the introductory neuroscience class because I can take it past fail if it turns out it's really hard. And, and I ended up absolutely loving it. And I decided to major in cognitive neuroscience, even though I didn't want to be a doctor. And even though I learned pretty early on that going into research also wasn't for me, I was like sitting in the lab watching like a poor rat, you know, like lick the glass. And I'm like, you know, hour number three, rat is still licking the glass. And I was like, I don't think this is for me. I can't do this. No, horrible, horrible. Yeah, it was not, you know, that, that part was a little bit of a bummer. But I, I ended up loving neuroscience partially because as a science, it's so new. Like when you study biology, as an example, like so much of what you're learning has been established for like 60 years, you know, but with neuroscience, like there's so much that's not understood still. There's so many like mysteries and you'll be in the middle of a class and your professor will be like, tear out chapter four, like a new study just came out that completely changes how we think about, you know, sensory receptors in our tongue or the way that this learning feedback loop works is actually totally different. Or we don't know, here are two competing theories, like write a paper on 
what you think. And so it felt really pioneering as far as science went. And I think that that ended up being, I haven't used my neuroscience degree, like, you know, in my, in my professional life very concretely, but what I think it did kind of inspire in me was a love of like making decisions in areas with where you don't have complete data, where so much is still unknown. And so it's very unique in the kind of science fields and in, in how brand new it is. I absolutely love that. It makes a lot of sense too. If you're building businesses now, you like bringing new things into existence. You're an innovative person. So it makes sense that neuroscience would be interesting for you. Are you familiar with Dr. Andrew Huberman at all? Do you ever listen to his stuff? Or do you know who that is? Well, I've heard the name, but I can't say I've listened to any of his stuff recently. He is someone I feel like you might really enjoy. It gets a little heady, but I worked with him closely at our last startup. And like he says the exact same thing you do. Like neuroscience is so interesting because every single day, even now in 2022, we're talking about you in school, but even still, like it's a completely different industry every single year. And so anyway, I didn't know if you'd heard of him or not, but I feel like you would just, you would really like that. It's it's nice to kind of like bring back some of those college interests as an adult, you know? I love that. And also we share a similar philosophy in that a lot of schools make you do the GE thing, which sucks, but I used to say I'm never doing a minor and I'm going to take the classes that like I just find interesting, whether that's like psych or neuroscience or computer science. So I just also want to preface this for like the listeners that are like, oh my God, I wish I went to Brown. Like I have to take my GEs this month or whatever. You can also do the, I'm not going to do a minor path and just take classes that you find interesting because everyone has to do a major, you know? But I think if you don't have that flexibility, I would recommend that path too because then you can kind of do what, what Justine did and do just a little, a little buffet of all the things. Right. Or doing extracurriculars that have nothing to do with your major or, you know, volunteering. Or I think I used to feel kind of like lost in that I didn't have like one thing. Like there were certain people who were like, I am this type of a person. And I've known my life mission since I was little, you know, like my, my dad always knew he wanted to be a lawyer and he went and he became a lawyer and he's been a lawyer for 35 years. And I'm like, well, that sounds nice. Like I've never felt like I didn't want to choose one direction because I was always kind of thinking, oh, but what about this other direction? And, and I think for a long time that made me feel a little lost. Like I sort of wished that, that I had one clear passion or goal that I could just go achieve. But I think I, over time, I, I grew to see my kind of generalist interests as an asset and that maybe I am actually more interesting and more complex as somebody who dabbles in a bunch of different functional areas, a bunch of different subjects. You know, I was a science major who like did a writing program with high school girls after school. And I also randomly took classes on ancient Mayan glyphs because I was interested in that. And I like did scientific illustration and like none of it makes sense. And when I I started seeing that as, as maybe an advantage, as opposed to me just being like unfocused, I think I I felt more kind of free to, to step into my kind of curiosities and follow my energy instead of feeling like I had to have it all make sense and fit nicely, you know, on a resume. Yeah, it's so refreshing to hear too, especially from someone like you who has found your path that like back then it was, and maybe even still you have all these interests and hobbies outside of work that it was a little bit more muddled and you're like, where do I go? So what is your advice? And I'm sure you you faced this too. You were about to leave school. You chose the consulting path, which I want to get into, but like What's your advice for the person that's like in college? They, like you said, do a writing program. Maybe they major in like philosophy. They are obsessed with soccer and they 
read comic books. Like the person that does exactly what you say, they have all these interests. They're so interesting, but like, they're like, what job does this fit into? Like, what is your recommendation for them? And how did you, I guess, navigate that because you face the same thing? Yeah, I think I would say, you know, a couple things looking back. I think one is that it's it's really important to follow your energy. Journaling can be really effective in helping you understand where is my own energy going? You know, like like looking back at your day or your week and saying, what were the moments when I felt like most alive and most energized and most in flow? And what were the moments when I was like, ugh, the hands on the clock are just going by so slowly. And I just kind of hated that. And ideally that tells you something about the type of work or the type of environments or the subject areas that you're going to be best at. Because often when you love what you're doing is when you have the opportunity to actually be really good at it too. It's hard to be really good at something you really don't enjoy. I mean, it happens, but it's a little harder. So I think just like being really reflective around where's my energy bringing me, even if it doesn't necessarily align with like what might be expected of me as a next step. And so I think that that's one reflection. And, and then the other is when you're young, it's, it's helpful to put yourself into positions where you have options. One of the reasons why I went to go work at Bain was because I knew that it wasn't moving in a direction that closed a whole bunch of doors. I could pivot from Bain into a bunch of different directions. And I would kind of get this like generalist skill set, be exposed to a bunch of different things, and that I would I would learn. And, and so when you don't know what direction you want to go in, it can be helpful just to gather data, <laughs> you know, and put yourself in a position where there's a high velocity of like new data, new information and exposure to new things and, and putting yourself in that kind of, you know, fire hose in, in that position where you're exposed to a bunch of different things can be helpful for then a couple of years in the future, being able to reflect and say, okay, what were the parts of that that I really liked? What did I not like? And slowly but surely, you'll be able to kind of narrow in on where is the overlap of my energy, my skill set, and like a job that pays the rent. Yeah, that's like the trifecta we're all looking for, right? (laughs) Energy, skill set, and job that pays the rent. I love this idea too of going to a job that opens doors rather than closes and just observing. Like I think there's this, and maybe it's just easier in hindsight to share, but like there's this like impatience with like just observing and gathering data and journaling that I think a lot of people that are high achievers like you were, it can be really hard to just wait and like observe and think on it, you know, versus take action. Like as someone who does care, I know a lot of our listeners like are super high achievers and they're like, no, but I want to know now. And like, I want to make moves and I want to do whatever. Like maybe it is journaling was your way, but like, was there something that you did? Was it talking to people? Was it talking to mentors? Was it researching online? Like how did you kind of calm that wanting to figure it out now and like taking action now? I don't know that I did a great job of it, honestly. I, I think I was absolutely one of those people who was like, just like, I want to figure it out now. And I think I made some mistakes that like looking back, I like wish that I could give myself some advice. Like I, I think in my early 20s, I was drawn to like people or things that made me feel like I had it all together when like maybe I didn't actually, you know, or like leaning on, um, you know, trying to jump the hurdles that were in front of me because I knew that, you know, other people would think that it looked, you know, successful. And I definitely, I think my anxiety kind of like drove me in that direction. It's, it's really interesting when you 
are good at school, you know, and you have this ruler up that's like, what does it mean to be successful? And it's very clear in school, you know, and then you enter like the real world and nobody kind of tells you like how difficult that transition is when suddenly that ruler that you've had your whole life like falls away and you're sort of like, well, like I'm working really hard. I'm in this job. I'm sort of like the bottom of the totem pole. You know, I'm, I'm really stressed out all the time. I also like have a lot of fun with my friends and I'm learning, but I'm, I don't know that I'm happy all the time. Like, am I successful? You know, like what is my ruler? How do I gauge success now? Now that I don't have this ruler being held up to me kind of externally in a really objective way, there are so many different paths and so many different ways to define success. And you have both the freedom to define it for yourself. And that's a wonderful thing. And it can also be a a kind of like scary and hard thing for those of us who are just like good at jumping the hurdles that were in front of us. Such a good point. Like it's just not as clear. No one's giving you an A, B or C. No more tests, no more like defined semesters. How long do I stay at this job? There's no end date. Like you're not graduating. And it's such a good point. Like it's a different, especially for achievement oriented folks. It's just like a different system. And for the people that maybe did like the schooling system from K through 12 in college, they're like, wait a sec, I mastered that. Why am I not mastering this like new system? I think it can be really shocking. So you're at Bain. You're like you said, it opened a lot of doors for you. I know you stayed there for a couple of years and then you jumped to Open Door. Can you tell me a little bit about how you found out about Open Door? And maybe for the listeners who aren't as in, involved in the tech world, like just a brief summary of what Open Door is. Open Door at the time was an early stage tech startup and it had a really bold vision that was we're going to build a future where people can buy and sell homes online in just a few clicks instead of having this really long, really difficult, really uncertain process around listing a home, getting a realtor, getting offers, not knowing how much you're going to sell it for, waiting, you know, that home sale process is is really challenging. And so Open Door's idea was if we can get really good at using machine learning to predict what a home will sell for on the market and how long it'll take to sell, we can actually go up to somebody who wants to sell their home and say, hey, we'll buy that from you directly for what it would have sold for minus a fee. And then you can kind of be on your merry way and we will resell it and find the buyer who you would have found should you have listed your home and just resell it very quickly. So for a seller, you have this experience of not having to list, not having to do showings, having certainty and and can uh, be more in control of the sale of your you know most valuable asset. And so it, it was a um, really bold, really, really challenging business model with a, a tremendous amount of precision that was required on uh, pricing and on operations. And I really just had at the time, I think my mindset was I wanted to build something of my own. Working in Bain, which was a fabulous place to start my career, and I would recommend it to anybody, but you're really assigned to clients and you're working on their products and their dreams and their, you know, their goals. And I and I kind of wanted to build something of my own. And I loved the huge vision for that open door was um, was laying out. And I loved how hard the model was and how bold it was. There was something that was really intoxicating about that to me. And, and I realized, and this was really kind of empowering for me at the time, I realized I can take on the greatest amount of risk now than I'll ever be able to, to take on in, you know, in the future. And that sort of like remains true. Like it's sort of, you know, right now, you know, as somebody in my, you know, 30s, early 30s, like I I can also take on more risk now than I probably will be able to when I'm 40. But I kind of felt like 
you know what, my whole life is still ahead of me. If I want to ever do anything kind of risky, like maybe now is a, a good time. I don't have a mortgage. I don't have kids, you know, so why not? Let's do it. And, and, and really the way that I found out about Open Door was from a friend of mine who, who worked with me at, at Open Door, who was a couple years above me who I just really, really looked up to. Her name was Julia DeWall. She's a, a, still a dear friend. And I just looked up to her and was like, she's really smart and competent and cool and nice. And she left to go join Open Door. And I was like, if Julia is going, I need to think about this. And since then, I have made almost every single hiring job decision based on on just purely like people. <laughs> like that, you know, I, I just follow the people who I look up to and go to where they're going. It's a great hack because if you trust somebody, like they'll do the diligence. And I knew that if she liked it, that there was something special about it and that I probably would like the other people there. So I met up with, with the early team at Open Door and, and decided to take a leap. And it was a really interesting and kind of bold decision for me at the time because all of the partners at Bain and, you know, they were all like, this is crazy. You know, why are you leaving? This business is going to fail. Most startups fail. And I, I talked to my dad to get advice. And he told me something that in retrospect was pretty wise, which was just like, you're making all these pro-con lists, you know, and trying to weigh out what's the right answer, but you're underweighting your own happiness day to day. Like that's a really important pro in the pro-con list. You know, where's your energy going? What is your day-to-day happiness? Do you enjoy this? Is it fun for you? And I realized that being with this group of young, energized startup entrepreneurs who were like shooting the moon together, working really hard, that brought me energy. And so I was like, you know what? Like it might be objectively stupid to leave this like cushy job and go work at this startup, but I think I got to do it. Oh my gosh, that is so cool. Just quick question. How early was Open Door when you joined? Obviously now it's a behemoth, but like then what employee number were you? I was employee 28. I was the 14th in headquarters. So the 14th in in San Francisco. Wow, that's insane. And it's so funny to look back now because it's become this thing, but there's really no way to ever know. Like you said, you have to be in it and live it. I love that line by your dad too, you know, like I do think happiness is such a huge part of it. And it's like this energy flow you were talking about earlier. Like where are you sensing that you are getting your energy and where are you most excited? You also talk about you felt like this was a risk and you felt like you wanted to build your own thing and not necessarily build other people's things, which was maybe a little bit of bane. I'm really curious how much you felt like you were able to build your own thing at Open Door versus building the early team's Open Door. Because like, I think that's one thing that, I don't know, a lot of entrepreneurs are like, yeah, I can go work for a startup, but it's still like ex-CEO's startup. You know what I mean? Like it's hard to build your own thing now you're really building your own thing. You know what I mean? Which we'll get to, but like, I'm so curious about, maybe they gave you an insane amount of autonomy, but tell me a little bit about that, that comment. It really felt like it was my own thing. And I think like as part of an early team, you're opting in to be there, knowing that you're going to give your all, whether you're a founder or not. And so I really felt like a tremendous amount of, of ownership and a tremendous amount of pride over the product. I still do. Like, it still feels like it's my baby. And I've told this to like the CEO, I'll be like, this is your company, but I feel like it's my company. And that feeling of ownership was really important to me. And I didn't have at that point, the experience or the confidence, uh, which is probably the more important part to go out on my own, like, and actually be the the CEO, you know, or the, or the founder. And I don't think that it not being a founder means you can't feel ownership over it. 
you own equity. You know, like you are a co-owner and your blood, sweat and tears is manifesting this product, this experience in the real world. Um, When you're in that kind of zero to one phase every day, you're building things that dramatically change the product and seeing that impact, I think makes you feel a feeling of ownership that I found to be really rewarding, even though I wasn't a co-founder. Yeah, I think that's such an important point that not enough people talk about. Those like early employees do feel like it's their business because either one, you scaled to the point where you had to like manage a team and build so much of the product itself. But also you gave up a lot and it's a big risk to join something that's just basically on vision and doesn't totally exist. And I think if you see it go from not totally existing in its entirety to like being a completely different business, you feel like you were part of that. And it's it's so cool. I, I totally hear you. I was the second employee at a startup and I feel like for a thousand percent, it's my child. I wasn't my idea. It wasn't anything, but you're there, your blood, sweat and tears. You also get so close to the team that it feels like we're all co-founders. So I, I totally hear you. And I think that's why it's so cool to, to get that experience almost with a great startup before you go do your own thing. Being a part of a early team is the best education you could possibly get. I think that people sometimes think that the reason to do that is like, if it becomes big, then your equity will, will be worth something. And like, yes, wonderful when that works out. But I think that the value that I got from Open Door looking back on it, um, there's so much else that I got from that journey other than just like the dollar figure of the equity. Like I made the most amazing friends, like people who I am still so close with today. So many of my co-founder now, so many of my investors, so many of our employees, really good friends came from that journey. I learned a tremendous amount. I also earned some like street cred, you know, in, in Silicon Valley from like having having been there and helped to build things that ended up becoming large. And, and that made, you know, investors trust me to do my thing in the future with my own startup. And so just the network, the friendships sounds really corny, but like the community and the learning is worth so much. Yeah. It's like, I use the word like apprenticeship. Like it's like you basically are in this like apprenticeship phase of if you're joining an early team, you just, you're, you learn so much. You learn the craft of building, right? You learn the craft of operating. And like a lot of the times when you're segmented into very narrow parts of a large company or you are doing consulting work, it's just so much more narrow. And so I always tell people like, go get your startup apprenticeship and then, and then go build your thing. Would you give that advice to, I guess, I know we're kind of jumping ahead because you had another gig before Kindred, but like in terms of, starting the thing. A lot of entrepreneurs don't know whether they, what's the timing? When do they start their own thing versus go work for an early team? Do you need the confidence? Do you need the experience? Do you not? What is like your advice for that? If someone is like trying to decide early team versus their own thing? I would say do early team if you haven't done it. I really found it to be very, very valuable. Just the pattern recognition, you know, like seeing how do things change from 10 employees to 50 to 100 to 500. Like there are certain breaking points where backend systems break or the way that you communicate as a team just like sort of breaks around 100, 150 and you need to start doing this at that point. And like just having been through that journey once is really, really helpful. And so yes, absolutely. You can be a successful founder without having been an early employee before. It's doable. 
I think there's also a reason why you often see a lot of successful founders are people who have had some reps under their belt of the kind of like high growth journey. And so with a startup, there are so many risk factors and there are so many things that are out of your control, you know, like the market or like funding environment or competition. And there's so many variables, but there are certain things that you can control and and you should try to optimize those. And some of the things that you can control is the learning and the readiness that you have when you walk into it. And another thing that you can control is like your co-founders and like your founding team and making sure that you have really strong relationships, that you feel that you have the right experience. It's totally true that you're never going to feel like 100% ready and that so much of the time you just kind of need to take a leap. But I, I also think that there is reality to a certain amount of experience being very helpful, even if it's just making it much easier to get those first checks in because you do need runway to have time to, you know, find product market fit. And so if somebody's thinking about wanting to be an, an entrepreneur, I would definitely recommend being a part of a kind of high growth ride as a way to learn. Yeah, it's such good advice. And also learning the industry in and out. Like, you know, maybe you're a unique case, but you did open door for four years, then you did homebound for four years. Now you're building still in the like real estate space. And so I think what's so special too is you were able to play with other people's money, learn the ins and outs of a space for so long, and then be like, okay, now that I know that, I'll still play in this space, but I'll learn from all the other mistakes that were made. And it's a good way, I think, to just like, scope out kind of what are the common pitfalls in a wellness business or a, you know, a SaaS, regular SaaS business, you know, playing with other people's money maybe sounds a little tacky, but like that is kind of what it is. You like, okay, we'll run some paid ads. It's their investor dollars, not necessarily. It's like, I'm the founder, you know? Yeah, totally. And, And the other thing is you meet people and they meet you. The world is so much smaller than we think, especially when we get into specific verticals, specific industries, like in prop tech. You know, there's a certain set of investors who do a lot of prop tech deals. And I know a lot of them because they invested in Open Door and they invested in Homebound and now they're investing in, in my, my next company. And one of the things that I didn't realize when we, you know, pitched Andreessen Horowitz, they did 40 reference checks on me and my co-founder, <laughs> like a ridiculous amount of reference checks. And I remember thinking like, oh my goodness, I'm so glad I didn't like make a trail of enemies, you know, <laughs> like through my prior jobs. Um, and uh, and so like these, these jobs that you're working in your early 20s, like they're helpful not only for building learning, but you're also starting to build relationships because you're going to cross paths with these same people, you know, over and over and over again throughout your career. And you want to be in a position where you know people and they know you and people have great things to say about you. And like that, that really helps when it comes time to recruit your own team and try and convince people to work with you. When you're fundraising, it's much more helpful to already have been able to develop a, a reputation as somebody who can, you know, get stuff done, um, who can really deliver real value, somebody who people like to work with, that all really helps. Yeah, it's such a good point. And I think especially, like you said, when building out your own team, you then know their reputation. You can do reference checks because you for yourself because you already worked with them. And I think like there's nothing worse. We always hear all the time, like the bad eggs in a startup, you know, like there's nothing worse than bringing someone on who's just like, unfortunately, like signed on, got equity and just is not great. And so it's, it's actually smart the other way around too. Like you, it's sort of a casual way to reference check other people and almost build your like internal directory of like, oh, wow, this is a great product person or like, 
oh my gosh, they really know everyone in like the venture world. I'm going to bring them on to do investor relations or like whatever that is. It's very cool to hear. Now, I want to get to Kindred, but before we do, I just have one question about this niche you've carved for yourself. You did head of visit experience and biz ops at Open Door and then head of customer experience and brand at Homebound. So that sounds like ops, but also like experience. How did you find that niche? I, it's not a very common title either of those and you got them at both places you went to so could you tell me a little bit more about like that that niche of the of the business that you felt like you excelled in the most you know maybe comes as no surprise given all that we've talked about today that I could never kind of pigeonhole myself and into you know one thing or one place that what I ended up kind of developing kind of accidentally as a bit of um my expertise or my kind of niche was being able to work on integrated online, offline kind of hybrid customer experiences. So these customer experiences that take place partially like on an app or digital experience and partially in the physical real world. And it was something that a lot of companies are actually not amazing at. You know, they have their operations department and it sits over here and they have their technology organization and it sits over here and they don't really like talk and they maybe have their like e-commerce store and their physical stores and it's like totally disconnected. And more and more, especially in, in things like property technology, you know, there's certain kind of niches where you see it more. But more and more, we, we see this kind of experience design across one customer experience that takes place partially on a screen and partially in the real world. And so that was what I, I ended up having a couple opportunities at Open Door to lay out a vision for an online offline customer experience. Um, the, the first one was a, a home trade-in experience where people who are buying a new build home from a home builder could trade in their existing home to Open Door and close on both homes on the same day and have the experience of just paying the difference between the two homes instead of having these two separate transactions to kind of deal with and try and get the timelines to line up. And then the second one that I, that I worked on at Open Door is that home shopping experience, which is a really, really cool technology-enabled self-tour experience where we equipped you know real homes that were on the market with technology-enabled locks and built a smartphone app where you could go up to an open door home anytime between 6 a.m. and 9 p.m. Your app would geolocate you there and like a button would appear. And if you click the button, the door would like magically open and you could show yourself around and information about the home would be surfaced to you on your device as you as you move through the home. And to pull off that kind of an experience, you need to have a one consistent vision of what's happening at, at each of these touch points on the phone and also what's happening in the real world. And what I found a way to kind of put my like, I guess, special, my specialty in being a generalist, <laughs> if that makes sense, like it ended up being a really great fit because I could stretch over here and work with the ops team. And I could also stretch over here and work with the tech team and help it uh, bridge and kind of be that connective tissue between different types of people and different functions to create a coherent experience that met the vision kind of end to end each and every time. And so that was what I, I realized. I, I kind of had a, had a niche for myself. And part of the reason why I, I ended up taking the jump to go to work at Homebound which is a, a technology-enabled custom home builder. So helping consumers design, permit, and build their own custom home um, in a kind of technology-enabled portal. But part of the pitch that the founder, Nikki, who is another a friend of mine from Bain, actually, part of the pitch that Nikki said to me was, you can do the entire 
end-to-end experience design for this year-plus-long journey. And some of it happens in person and some of it happens on the screen. And we'd love for you to be able to do this experience design. And so I was like, okay, that sounds amazing. That sounds so fun. I'm going to come do it. So I think in, in a way, I was sort of able to like become a professional generalist <laughs> and build experiences that uh, required a decent amount of kind of multidisciplinary coordination. It's insane. I am loving this. And it's so cool to hear you describe it. It's such a niche that you've carved out for yourself. It's almost like you're a master of like the connector piece of like kind of knowing who the people are, knowing how to speak their language. Because obviously, you know, engineers speak a different language with this like operations project management of like, I can see it end to end all the way through. And it's very, very cool. I'm super impressed in that you also got recruited by a friend from Bain, which brings us back to the earliest point, which is be good to people and that this world is very, very small. I think that is so important. Don't burn bridges. Be a good person. You're going to keep running people over and over again. Like don't do anything that you wouldn't want your next job to know about because they'll find out. Yeah. You need to scream that from the rooftops. That is something that (laughs) I think across the board, it's so important. Everyone is that way, you know, especially as women, you know, got to be kind, got to be kind to each other. So You obviously carve out this niche for yourself. You're building two startups of someone else's, but obviously you're close to the founding team of both. So you feel a lot of autonomy. And then you're like, I am going to start my next thing, which is the thing that I met you about and that I'm so excited about. Please tell everyone about Kindred and like what you're doing now as the founder and CEO. So Kindred is a members-only home swapping network that my co-founder and I started really to solve our own problem that we were experiencing in the pandemic. We were working in remote, flexible environments for the first time. And as you know, I've spent my career at this point in the intersection of homes and technology. And it was just such a really interesting moment in time when suddenly overnight, there was a seismic change in what a lot of people wanted or needed out of their living situations. Now that we didn't have to be changed to our home offices, a lot of people wanted to be able to live a little bit more flexibly. They wanted to be able to spend time in other cities. And I wanted to spend, you know, a month in Lake Tahoe or a couple of weeks in New York City, catching up with my friends there. And I just felt like there was no great way to pull that off without spending an egregious amount of money. I think there was a little bit of an over-rotation for a little bit towards being a digital nomad. And there's so many wonderful things about being a digital nomad, but I think that it, what the data shows is that people get tired of it after a certain amount of time. It's not a great long-term solution for most people. By digital nomad, I mean, you know, getting rid of your lease, not having a home at all, putting your stuff into storage and just kind of living, you know, from Airbnb to Airbnb and moving around all the time. What we found was that most people want to have a home. They want to have a place for their stuff, a place with their, you know, things on their walls. They just also want to be able to travel way more without paying so much money to rent a vacation rental or a hotel. So the idea that we had was, what if we could just help people coordinate with those in their extended networks and just stay in one another's homes instead of having to rent a place, we just can fill each other's vacancies. And by letting somebody we trust stay in our home while we're out, we unlock access to hundreds or even thousands of beautiful, well-equipped homes all over the country or all over the world that we can stay at for close to nothing. Okay, you have to explain that part to me, this unlocking piece, because I think that that's really interesting. So a lot of the time, 
Like, let's say you want to go stay in New York. You don't want to pay for an Airbnb because that's going to basically double your, you're already paying rent and then you have to pay for this Airbnb. So you're going to do this home swapping network. Tell me about this, like unlocking all over the world. Let's say I want to go to France. How can I stay there for no money? So you can either do a reciprocal home swap with somebody in France. So they stay in your house while you stay in theirs. Or you can, we have a give a night to get a night policy. So let's say you're going to be gone. Actually, I'll use a real example. I have a wedding coming up. I'm going to be gone for about five nights. I'm letting a friend of mine from Austin stay in my place in San Francisco while I'm gone instead of letting my home sit empty. And then I can earn a kind of bank five nights that I can then use to stay in a home, another kindred home on the platform by using those nights that I earned. So you let people stay in your home for a night, you get to stay in somebody else's home for a night. I love this banking idea too. So it's like one-to-one. So like if you wanted to go stay at a hotel, but your your house was open and you weren't staying in someone else's, you could still bank those nights. So you're like doubling up because you're paying for your own rent and you're paying for the hotel, but you have this banked up so you can almost get like a credit down the line, which is actually a very cool idea. And then I love this trust piece because I think... A lot of people, I mean, I am a little bit like, oh my gosh, this is my sacred space and I control the energy and I, the idea of someone random coming in, like Airbnb-ing it out feels like very violating. And so can you tell me a little bit about like how individual people get their network to, so like, let's say me, for example, let's say I were to go to San Francisco for two weeks. How do I get my individual network or is it the kindred network that can stay at my place? Yeah, it's either. So we essentially create an environment of trust in a couple of ways. One is it's a membership community that is really strict kind of give to get. So the only people on the platform who can stay in these homes are people who have themselves applied to join with their own home. So you know that everybody kind of has the same skin in the game. They're doing something vulnerable and letting somebody stay in their place and when you're letting them stay in in your place. And then once people are in the platform, we can help connect you with others who you have something in common with. Maybe they're, you know, friends of yours on social media, or maybe they're people who uh, have an, uh, an interest in common. Maybe they are also have a dog or also have a podcast. Maybe they went to your same school. And so we get to know our members and figure out what are your kind of trust boundaries and how can we recommend people in the kindred network who you either are already connected to in some way or who you have something in common with and give you the opportunity to meet. So we require people, if they don't already know each other, to connect over Zoom and uh, get to know each other or send videos back and forth before they confirm anything because we really want it to feel like a house guest instead of like a renter. And the fact that you're not paying to stay somewhere also makes it feel much more human and much less transactional. The really interesting thing that we see is that when people are not paying to stay, they actually respect the home more. It's a little counterintuitive. You would think that you value something more when you pay a lot of money for it. But often what we see with Airbnbs is people are like, I'm paying $800 a night for this. Like, I'm going to put my feet on the couch. You know, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm a customer. And there's an entitlement feeling. But with Kindred, when it's a friend of a friend who's letting you stay in their place while you're gone, there's a feeling of somebody has been really generous with me and is letting me stay in their space. I feel really flattered. I'm so grateful. What can I do 
to be a really great guest. You know, I'm going to follow all of your instructions and do you want me to water your plants? And so the vibe is really, really different. Oh, that's so interesting because cash is not switching hands. And then I imagine you guys charge like a membership fee to be part of it. So you're just facilitating, even in, from your team standpoint, you're just, you want it to be the best connection. You're not even trying to milk the cost. You're like, we just really actually genuinely want it to be the right match because people are kind of paying you one membership fee. So it's actually people probably trust Kindred too more because you guys don't have any incentive in having, placing me at like a more expensive place. You just kind of are like, what's the right fit? which I think is really, really cool. It's almost like it's different, but it reminds me a bit of the Airbnb early days where like you would like let people actually stay in like your bed and breakfast and like kind of have a mattress and it was a little bit more homey and a little bit more cozy. That's like the vibe I'm getting to. So yeah, and I, I think it's it's really interesting because, you know, Airbnb started with this vision of having real people kind of share their real spaces with each other. But because it has this monetization model where you're paying somebody cash over time, the supply has professionalized. So when you're when it's a, a, an opportunity to create cash flow, you know, investors will get in the space and they'll buy up homes and turn them into full-time Airbnbs. And now the inventory of Airbnb, it's like, you know, over 80% are investor-owned, you know, full-time Airbnbs. They're not like real homes anymore. And I think that by making Kindred a give-to-get community instead of paying people with cash, we can prevent that kind of same gravity from uh, pulling investors into the space because there's no reason for an investor to go buy up, you know, 10, 15 homes to put them on Kindred. You're not earning cash to help you, you know, pay off that mortgage. It's It's not a business. Kindred is really for real homes, real people who don't want to be running a hotel business. They just want to be able to let somebody who they trust stay in their place while they're out. And they want to be able to earn the right to stay in other beautiful homes when they travel. Yeah. It's so genius. I'm obsessed with this. And I just love the fact that the incentive is not cash. Like you said, I think it's just really cool that it's a membership model versus a monetization model. Just, I think that's the real crazy part. Okay. Well, I could keep talking to you forever about all the little nuances, but I want to respect your time. So I have one final question for you. This is something we ask all of our guests. We've obviously shared lots of gems in this conversation, but if there was one piece of advice you would want to give to all 20-somethings, what is that advice you would give them? I think that the advice that I would give is that it gets better. (laughs) Real talk, it gets better. Real talk, it gets better. Like my 20s were hard. I feel like people didn't tell me that, you know? Like nobody told me that when I graduated college and entered the world, like that suddenly I would feel quite lost and, and kind of anxious about being lost. And I really didn't know. And I still kind of don't know what do I want to do when I grow up? Am I doing well? You know, I don't know, like I'm, I'm doing my best. And I, I think like looking back, I, I wish I could just um, help soothe some of the anxieties and, and, you know, tell 20 somethings, like you don't need to know the next step. There is a wonderful movie called Frozen 2. And in that movie, <laughs> there's a song <laughs> that says, you just have to do the next right thing. and I remember watching that movie and feeling like that's really profound. Um, And I I think that that's good advice for any 20 something. You don't need to have the whole path figured out. You just need to think about what's the next right thing for me to do. Let me get an inch closer. Let me follow my energy. Let me put myself in a position to learn or to get more data if I'm not sure what direction I want to move into. And you'll keep figuring out the next right thing to do. And 
slowly but surely, you'll find your way. I love it. It's very neuroscience of you, I will say, to be talking about small steps because that's all about habit change. You do little things every day. So that brings it full circle. Well, Justine, this was so fun. I am such a fan of yours. I love your energy. I loved a lot of your comments today and I just cannot thank you enough for your time. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Erica. I had so much fun talking with you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20-something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20-something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts.